Hey there, welcome to Sales Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Nadena, and this is the show where we talk with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is Nick Bertolino, co-founder of Pipeline CRM. Pipeline CRM is number one CRM, and since last year, also a member of SaaS Group family. So welcome. And today uh, we're here to learn how they bootstrap their way into becoming one of the most adopted CRMs for small and mid-sized businesses. So Nick, it's great to have you. It's great to be here. Well, um, yeah, yesterday I had an amazing talk with JP, your co-founder, nice. and he had a lot to tell me uh, <laughs> about Pipeline. But yeah, this one is about you. So let's start with your background. Sure. Uh, so my background is completely the opposite of, of JP's, actually. So my background is in technology. I have an undergraduate degree in computer science. Uh, I also have an MBA degree but I've spent most of my career uh, in the consulting field and doing uh, technology integration projects, managing technology projects, kind of in that space between um, the business and hardcore engineering. I was always in that middle ground, not really a hardcore engineer and not really truly business. So I was in that uh, middle ground area that can speak both of those languages. Um, so in terms of the relationship between JP and I, JP was always more and we partnered together because he was more the sales and marketing guy and I was kind of everything else operations. And that's, so that's been my background. Um, prior to starting Pipeline CRM, I spent four years uh, where I met JP at a company uh, in the e-commerce space and I was on the operational side and JP was on the sales and marketing side. That was how we met. And my background there was in um, just managing the, the large client relationships that we had with some key customers and launching their e-commerce operations. These were very, very large e-commerce businesses that were being outsourced to us. That was the nature of the business. Um, and yeah, so that that's really been my background. And then, of course, the last... 16 years has, has been in, in building, um, pipeline CRM where, you know, I, I was and started out as kind of the product guy, um, designing, playing designer, playing product manager, playing, overseeing the engineers, um, answering the phone, wearing just about every hat you can imagine in the early days of a startup. And even the mid days, mid years of a startup, uh, I played um, often many, many different roles. It wasn't until probably the last three to four years that JP and I sort of settled into very defined sort of roles and an operating system for how to run the business. Um, and I sort of became the COO guy and JP became the CEO guy. Uh, and that was like a perfect fit for our backgrounds because that's really what we did. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what we did. So. Right. Yeah. So it's like a perfect duo everyone's talking about, right? Have uh, a more of a marketing guy with you and then a, a tech guy. And there yeah. you go. Poof. Uh, a startup just happens yeah. <laughs> kind of, <Yeah. laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, uh, tell us because I know that um, you actually hired somebody to do the software, right? Uh, but it turns out that you have a, a computer science degree. So why didn't you go and try and build software by yourself? Why did you try to outsource? Well, I, I didn't have the actual skills. So when I when I graduated, I had a computer science degree and I, I did coding as an undergrad in um, internships and co-ops. But when I got out of school, I went right into information technology or IT consulting in a management consulting firm. And right there and then I was sort of one step away from coding and I didn't code at all in my career. Um, but what I did do was manage engineers and software developers. And what I could do um, was design in pretty good detail from a UX perspective, the features and functions of the product. That was my sweet spot. That was a lot of my background in consulting was working with large clients and helping them figure out what features should go into a product to solve a specific um, business problem that they were having. So that's what I could do all day long. And that's what I did really out of the gates uh, at Pipeline was figure out what, what feature set we should have. And I did that throughout uh, our 16 years. And um, I, saw, I did that initially alone-ish, but then over time, everybody sort of got involved in, the pro in that process. JP was heavily involved, of course. And then, uh, you know, at some point we hired a product manager and at some point we hired a designer, but we didn't have a designer for our first four or five years, I think. Uh, a it was me just use, doing keynote right. presentations and PowerPoint presentations and giving that to an engineer uh, and saying, hey, you know, build this. And then I would make sure it worked and did what uh, it was supposed to. So long, long answer, but the, the, the short answer is I didn't have the skills really that were current to build, especially in um, the framework that we used, which was Ruby on Rails initially. And my skills were in sort of these obsolete languages I won't even mention because <laughs> they're so <laughs> dated uh, that I, you know, used in college. But Rails was sort of state in the art when we built the company. It was bleeding edge, actually. And uh, I didn't have those skills to actually do that, you know, and it would have taken me, you know, several years to, to, you know, get involved and immersed. And it wasn't something I really enjoyed either. You know, right. I enjoyed the creative part not the engineering part. I enjoyed figuring out what to build, how it's going to work, what did it look like, like all of that sort of, and solving a real business problem, right? That that is what got me out of bed, not sort of, oh, building this in Rails and debugging it and coding it and testing it and blah, blah, blah. Do you think it's still essential for, for a founder to understand at least the principles of how the tech should work? Because uh, it comes back to this argument of uh, no-code solutions just uh, overtaking the whole industry and uh, the fact that anyone can become a founder. But uh, on the other hand, you still kind of need to understand, like you said, the UX, the UI, like how it should work and how it should look uh, at, at the end. So what do you think... Um, is tech essential? I do think, uh, well, let's just say I, it, it doesn't hurt. Um, I, I think at some point, if you're building a SaaS business, you need to have some level, you have to have, 
get some experience. You don't necessarily have to have the education, but you need to know what questions to ask. You need to be able to call BS on your engineering team. The more technical skills you have, uh, the better. And it's interesting that JP didn't have any like of those skills coming in, but over that long period of time, like he was forced to learn and pick up some of those things. And he actually got pretty good at asking the right questions on from a technology perspective, because you know what, what you face as a business owner, a lot of times are really hard technical problems that you have to immerse yourself in. And you have to get some experience in because you won't be able to manage the business if you don't, you just won't. You're gonna have things like privacy issues, like GDPR, as you're well aware in Europe, I'm just giving an example of some things that have happened. You'll get involved in dealing with emergencies where uh, something happened with the data and a customer is complaining and whatever the case is, you have to pull backups and, and not backups and we don't have them. We do have them or you have downtime and you have to understand as a business owner how to minimize that risk and you have no choice but to um, immerse yourself in those technical issues. And if you have that background, it certainly does help. If you don't have that background, you're going to have to get that background and experience somewhere, somehow, if you're going to have and run and manage a successful business. So do I think you have to have somebody who has a, a technical and engineering degree? Not required if they have a decent level of experience. And I would say technical aptitude and an ability and have sort of this mindset, a progressive mindset to be learning. And when I say learning, I don't mean that, you know, the CEO or the COO should be taking Rails courses and doing coding. What I mean is that they should be immersing themselves and educating themselves on top of mind or current technical issues that are out there that you have to deal with. For example, today, like it's all about this chat, GDP and AI. And so as a business owner, you kind of got to get yourself familiar with that stuff. You, you, no, you don't have a BS degree or an MS degree from MIT in artificial intelligence, but it's going to impact your business in some way, shape or form. And you've got to figure out, should I, should I do something with that? Should I invest in that or not? What does it mean for us? You have to ask yourself those questions. And again, that it's helpful to have some of that technical background, but if you have the aptitude and the mindset and the ability to learn, you should be fine. Right. Okay. Uh, so let's get into, into the operations, right? You're the operations guy. So <laughs> yeah. let's jump there because yesterday we got a bit of a um, story of founding a uh, pipeline, but I would love to move on to, to scaling. And uh, JP mentioned, um, Quite a few rules that you guys had, especially in your bootstrapping journey, revenue before expenses and not hiring somebody uh, before you absolutely knew that you can afford it. So why did you have those rules and what were the absolute essentials and what were some that you could just forgo? I mean, we had those rules um, because we felt like a lot of the industry most of our peers and most of our competitors, first, let me back up. We, we had those rules out of necessity. We didn't have the cash because we were bootstrapping. We didn't have the cash to end the luxury of just spending money willy nilly 
on things that may or may not make sense to the business. So uh, revenue before expenses was just a prudent and practical way to think about the business to make sure that we managed the risks that we were going to be able to make payroll. <laughs> I mean, it was that it's that simple, you know, and when you don't have um, that fear that you're going to run out of cash and let's just say you're funded VC or however it is, your mindset is more spending. It becomes spending machine and you don't, you're thinking about revenue and growth, but it's just different when you have the cash in the bank. And I think you're loose with it in many ways. You know, um, you don't have the same level of controls. So that's just basically why we had the rules in place. You know, it was a practical thing. We needed to make sure that um, the business was able to support itself and be profitable and support us as a company. Um, and um, that was just, that was basically it. You know, it, it was just, it's, it's the boots, it's the bootstrapping mindset that you, you have. And it's completely different. Again, if you have VC funding, it's, it's just this, you're less frugal and, you know, you want to just spend money to solve problems. Um, and every solution, if you have that mindset tends to be higher, 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 more costs, more costs, more costs. And we only did that, uh, out of necessity and practicality. And because we wanted the business to be profitable and stand on its own. And so our hires were very thoughtful and, um, driven by the realities and the economics of the business. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. So at what point did you decide that it is time to scale? I, I remember that the first hire was in about like two and a half years, right? And before that, it was just you and JP picking up the phones and doing two jobs at a time. So uh, how did you start scaling and where did this uh, revenue that you, you started getting uh, at the end of the day uh, was going? Um, we started scaling. Um, I mean, early on, we, we were lucky enough to uh, have a really large customer in our first year of business. And it's just something that um, doesn't happen often 
but we had, um, both JP and I were working second jobs. I was at a consulting gig. Um, JP was also doing consulting or working two days a week. Um, and that we were doing sort of pipeline as a side hustle three days a week, a big side hustle. Right. And, um, we, we got a lucky break one. Um, we did a blog post and the blog post, uh, talked about, uh, the technology we were using called rails, Ruby on rails and why we believe that that was, uh, a good thing for building an internet, uh, an application, a great experience. Um, why we picked the technology basically. That caught the eye of an IT director in a billion dollar company who called our 800 number that I answered in the hallway of our customer client. <laughs> and, uh, he said, Hey, can you guys handle 500 sales reps? Because he said, I have an application that I want to migrate. I don't want to do the, maintain this anymore. It doesn't make economic sense. I want to do this rent. Uh, a software kind of a thing. And we, uh, I of course said, absolutely. We can support it. Um, and we had perhaps less than 50 people, 50 users total across all companies and customers at the time. And he said, I'm going to 10 X you. I didn't tell him how many we had. He knew we were fairly small and a startup and it took three additional sales calls to close that deal, including with the CIO of the company, believe it or not, CIO of, you know, this would be like a CIO of a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical kind of company. And, um, somehow we got through that <laughs> and they asked us all kinds of questions on security. We were not at all prepared for, but somehow, you know, we made that decision to be transparent with them and made the decision to give them a pretty good deal. And, and we used one of our weaknesses as a strength. So we used our weakness of size. Imagine us competing with Salesforce to the same company. But one thing we knew at the time that we could do that Salesforce couldn't was give these guys 120% of the attention that they wanted and needed to make them successful. And that's what we did. And that's what we told them. And that's how we closed that deal. And that, um, customer was a customer for over six and a half to seven years. And so we scaled the business because of that customer, that customer was 80% of our revenue, 90% of our revenue for a year and a half. And we just poured all of that into the business into hires. And that's how we built and scaled the business in the very, very early days. Um, they gave us credibility. They gave us references. We flew out to see them. We went to their conferences and we went out of our way and even bent the application, something we really didn't want to do to support features that they really wanted. And that was all in the vein of having this foundational customer having the cash flow to build the business out as we wanted and to scale it. And that was really sort of, uh, they were the anchor, uh, and, um, and instrumental in us building the company.
Right. Almost like your investors, it sounds like. In a, in a way, yeah. They, it was kind of like that. They, they didn't give us money, but uh, they gave us, uh, of course, they paid for the service that we gave them. Um, so it just took one of those. And then, you know, then we had more dollars to hire. We made the product a lot stronger and we can invest a little bit more in sales and marketing and on and on and on. What was the most challenging part of scaling? You know, I think that most challenging part of scaling, um, well, I mean, you could look at that question from a number of different perspectives, right? That could be in terms of people to support the business, that could be in terms of technology. I think one of the hardest things um, to scale and to get right, I just remember a lot of struggles and this customer actually helped quite a bit with it because with them being a very large customer and having 500 users, our system was never really tested for that, you know, and the amount of data that they would actually use and put in. So, you know, we would go to the, the deals page, which just lists all of the deals from all of the reps and it wouldn't load, you know, and it was like those kinds of problems that I think were hard to get right and to, and to scale the business. And if, you know, the engineering problems get pretty hard, you could only throw so much hardware. You've got to keep optimizing the software. You've got to put rules in place and constraints that say, if you load this page with 50,000 records, it's going to load. If, if it doesn't, uh, it won't. And you have to message the customer and tell the customer. So I think those were some of the early challenges from scaling. Like, how do we get this thing to work? And that customer forced us to make our application do those kinds of things because they would literally call me or call JP and say, hey, you know, I've got 10 reps that can't sell right now because their page doesn't load. And I would go, hey, Grants, we need to get the page to load. Let's, how do we do that? Let's make that happen. What, what more do you need from us to try to get um, the software to work faster and everything to load for this customer. So they, they really helped us and forced a lot of those scalable problems onto us because if they were not there, we would have encountered them much later time. And who knows what engineering decisions we would have made that we would have had to undo later on because the product just doesn't, isn't going to work, but they helped us from the engineering and technical um, perspective in terms of scaling uh, the application and our infrastructure. So those are some of the, the scaling things are like, those are hard to scale um, problems that are, you know, super hard to, to make work. I mean, you know, you could look at that question also, I would say second hardest, um, I think set of problems uh, are in scaling sales and marketing. It's always a challenge uh, to get that right. It wasn't until I think, you know, our, our later years and sort of 12, 13, 14, last five years of the business that we got pretty smart and pretty sophisticated thanks to our board on having a discipline financially and looking at returns from very strict perspectives, you know. Uh, I wouldn't say we were 
spending money wildly before that, but we had a lot more control and a lot more rules in place in the latter part of the business. It's just not something that early businesses spend a lot of time thinking about in terms of scaling. And um, you need those metrics in place to scale your sales and marketing. Otherwise, you're just going to be doing a lot of hiring, a lot of firing of sales reps and giving a lot of money to Google. Right. So the, I think the first thing that you said about um, the features that you introduced and how how the yeah. um, how the tech works, I think that that goes back to uh, talking to your customer and everyone, you know, everyone says that it's a given and something that you have to do from day one. Um, and uh, the second point about marketing, right, this is something uh, that I had to learn too. like uh, when I joined SaaS Group, like who knew that your marketing is actually important for due diligence? Like what you right. what you were doing, what kind of ads you were running, what kind of returns you were getting from them. So let's get to it because it's a, it's kind of a something that confuses a lot of founders. What does uh, marketing and SEO have to do with due diligence process? So during the due diligence. Uh, why the acquirer would want to look at your marketing efforts and your marketing metrics uh, when they're considering to buy you. Like what, what was your experience? Well, I mean, my experience was any acquirer is going to start to ask you um, very specific questions around customer acquisition costs. You know, they're going to ask you, um, how much do you pay? Uh, they're going to ask you your LTV. They're going to ask you for your CAC to ARPA ratio. They're basically going to ask you what your return is on your marketing dollars. And so that's a really important question to get at from a scaling perspective, because those metrics don't look good. You're just going to, the business is going to not be able to sustain itself. And, um, you know, the business ultimately will fail if you start, uh, if you stop spending money on marketing. And so there, it's really important to get that, I think, dialed in. It's not something that I think a lot of early founders focus on. Like us, we, we focused on product um, and features and functions and not, oh, what is the return on our marketing dollar? Is it 12 months or is it 24 months? You know, and related to that, you mentioned SEO, the more successful you are at SEO, and it's very hard to be super successful at SEO, um, SEO is one of the, the ways by which you can lower your CAC. Um, because if you don't do SEO and you don't have the ability to acquire customers via word of mouth, via uh, anything other than Google AdWords, you're going to have a very large customer acquisition costs. It's that simple. The only way to reduce that is to get, to not pay Google, to not pay Google. It has to be through SEO and through SEO, you have to have a lot of content and have a really well-defined strategy on the keywords associated with that content. And you need to manage and track it. And you need to have tools in place to do all of that stuff to reduce your customer acquisition costs. Um, that's why it's really important. All of those questions came up during due diligence for sure. All right. So what was your uh, biggest spend marketing wise and what was, what brought the biggest return? 
Um, I mean, our biggest spend has, was always the search engine marketing and keywords, and it brought a decent return. Um, you, you know, depending, uh, but that, um, that was from a pure marketing perspective, that was a decent return for us, but we built our business, uh, on word of mouth marketing. We didn't really, we were spending minimal amounts early on for the first, for the first eight years of the business, we spend a tiny amount of revenue on marketing and we didn't even have a sales team. So our product did to some extent sell itself, but the way we sort of addressed that marketing was actually investing the dollars that would have gone to marketing in customer service. That's how we drove our word of mouth. We always believed, and since um, probably the second month, we had our 800 number on our homepage, which is still there today. Um, and we made JP and I deliberately and intentionally after talking with a fairly successful SaaS founder, uh, from an, a pure company, uh, that was much larger than us very, very early on who we asked for some feedback on our website and he said, where's your 800 number? And he said, well, you know, it's in our FAQs and you got to kind of find it. And it's, and he woke us up to shifting our mindset from customer service being a cost center to being a way to actually acquire customers. And when I say acquire customers, I mean by deliberately and intentionally over-investing in customer service. And that drove our word of mouth uh, completely um, for the first eight, 10 years uh, of, our, of our business for sure. And we have people, I mean, even like last year, there's people, the customer service has been from many, many companies, especially the big ones. It's a train wreck. It's just completely a train wreck. You, you get lost in an integrated voice response system, press one for this, two for this, tell me more. Now they've automated it even more. It's tell me what you're calling about. They never understand it. You try to get an agent, they block that now a lot of times to control their costs. So the airlines, the big telco providers all do this. It's an extremely frustrating experience. And it, it's been that way for a very, very long time. And so we, we knew that. And so when we, JP and I deliberately over-invested, we, to this day, refused to put any sort of integrated vo voice response system in because it's an irritation to the customer. And you would not believe how many people were just blown away that a human actually answers the phone. I can't believe right. you, you guys answered the phone. I mean, we used to get that in like 2007, 2008, but we got that like very early on. And, you know, a lot of times, especially on a, a system change, you know, in CRM where you have sales teams, sometimes those decisions are outside of their control and people are fearful of that change. And, you know, they have pressure to deliver a quote and now they have pressure to learn a new system. So they want always wanted some level of help and support. 
And we saw that as an opportunity to differentiate our business. And we did because the, the big people like Salesforce and our peer sets, you know, we're not doing that. And so we went over the top and over-invested by people in tools and in response times. And we metriced all of that stuff, you know, we wanted phones answered and whatever, less than 30 seconds or 10 seconds. And, uh, everybody got a response and we looked at tone, uh, in the response. We tried to ensure that the pipeline voice came across and it wasn't this like transaction and it wasn't just like some bot answering. And, you know, we didn't do these things that are done today because they're just terrible. You know, if you say you want help, generally somebody needs help. And like what will happen today is they will, you'll get intercepted and, um, it'll be recommended 10 FAQs that the system thinks you want to answer. And it's generally not at all helpful, but to me, all of those tactics and strategies just speak to, um, treating the customer in a bad way. It's like, you're not important enough to us. We can't handle and manage our own business. So we're going to let you do the work and you go find the answer in our FAQs. Now you should have FAQs, of course, if the customer doesn't want to speak to somebody. But again, if they've raised their hand and said, hey, I want to talk, you should not have your 800 number buried or hard to find. Um, you should uh, make it very easy for somebody to contact you and speak to somebody. And so putting up IVRs, putting up FAQs, putting up automated bots on your marketing pages and homepages, just all speaks to what a, you know, a great opportunity is to build a SaaS business and go over the top with customer service. I believe that today, if I were building a new SaaS business, I would do the same thing and going over the top because the bar is still low. It's gotten better in the SaaS community for sure, but it's still pretty bad. It's still pretty bad. It's like, it's, it's treated as a transaction, like getting people, it's this old mindset of call centers we have here in the US. It's like getting you off the phone as quickly as possible to hit some random metrics or numbers and not listening to the customer, not understanding their tone, their frustration, not helping solve the problem that they've asked for. So that's a long winded answer, but to the, the question around marketing and SEO, which I talked about for, specifically from a due diligence perspective, but in terms of how and what we invested in from a marketing perspective is actually in customer service a lot early on. Right. And I think it speaks a lot about your deep understanding of the customer. Like I can see how um, a SaaS business that serves a very young generation would not want to put a phone number there because no one's going to call because uh, Gen Z or Y or I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not very good with uh, this alphabet thing. I don't know thing. what those things either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, one's, no one wants to call. No one wants to talk to you on the phone. Uh, and it, it makes sense to have a WhatsApp number or like something like that. But I guess for, uh, for salespeople, it just makes sense because they want um, something solved and uh, solved very fast. And um, at the same time, um, what you said about acquiring customers, right? The word of mouth. And I think it's also um, goes to understanding who your customers are because salespeople 
are selling. They can call your BS in a second. So they would mostly be happy to follow somebody's advice and not just not just an ad on Google. Yeah. But uh, so yeah. Uh, but but thanks for for walking us through uh, the the whole process. So uh, you were talking about metrics, and um, let's let's get there a little bit. So what metrics were uh, essential and most important for you to to understand the know, the level of success that that you're uh, that you're having, or the level of satisfaction that you personally get from the business? Oh, metrics, metrics, metrics. I could talk for a long time on metrics, but you know, our, again, one of the things I've found is that like, obviously the longer you, um, stay in business and, and manage your business, the smarter you actually get, uh, about running it, the smarter you get about the metrics that really matter and how to manage them. And, um, We've always sort of over metric the business in, in some ways, but I would say again, the last three to five years of the business, we really dialed in on the most important metrics. Um, we have sort of a go-to, we had a go-to sheet of metrics that were really, really important. And the metrics go across the whole business, right? There, there are things that, um, you know, uh, we would look at from a sales and marketing perspective, we would look at from a technology perspective, an engineering perspective. There were a, a broad set of metrics from all different lenses of the business that were really, really important. Um, you know, on the engineering side, there are things like obviously system uptime and response time and application performance on the customer success time, super important churn from multiple different perspectives, um, you know, on the sales and marketing side, obviously your sales, your sales relative to, to quota and to a plan, um, your customer acquisition costs, your conversion rates, um, your basic, all of your basic financials. We, we actually reviewed our metrics, our key metrics, uh, on a scorecard every single week. Um, at, at a leadership team level, each team review their metrics also weekly, uh, at a deeper level, um, with their own, uh, team oriented scorecards. And we produced a set of metrics, um, every month at the end, when our financials close, uh, for ourselves and for our board that were really important as well. They're, I mean, just name a metric and it's on our scorecard, <laughs> but, um, you know, there, there, you have to have a decent understanding and a baseline understanding of, of your metrics. And if you're going to run a SaaS business, you know, we had a great, really great scorecard that if a SaaS founder asked me like, am I tracking the right things? And I just send them this, um, and it's super, super useful. Um, but it's, it's a broad set of metrics, um, uh, that we produced, we produced about 15 for a weekly and then on a monthly is probably at least 25 numbers. And we track, it was really important to look at that too, month to month to see the trends, of course, 
um, not just in isolation during the week. That's a pretty meticulous process. All right. So since, <laughs> you know, since we started uh, getting there, so what metrics were important for the acquisitions? What, what were the first numbers that uh, companies that um, approached you, not just SaaS Group, wanted to see? Well, they want to, you know, any, um, any acquirer is going to ask for everything that you would expect and more. So the, some of the first ones they're going to, they want your P and L's and your balance sheets for the last X years. Uh, they're going to want every, uh, metric around customer acquisition costs, CAC to ARPA, LTV, um, they're going to be extremely interested in everything related to churn monthly annual gross net um uh, your net dollar retention uh where is that where are you losing customers they're going to ask for um you know give me your top 10 uh clients top 25 clients they're going to look for is there risk there you know, uh, is too much revenue coming from one? They're going to ask for contracts for each of those 50, 10, top to top 10, top 25 customers and look at those contracts, look at the terms. What do they look like? Can they get out? Um, you know, what happens in a merger and an acquisition with those contracts? All of that, <laughs> all of that happens during the due diligence process. What was uh, the most surprising thing that uh, that the company asked, or maybe uh, for you, maybe maybe it wasn't, the it realization? Wasn't, it wasn't necessarily surprising. I mean, it was, um, you know, I it, it it was it was extremely comprehensive in terms of looking at your business, going through the due diligence process, extremely. Um, so like if there's one piece of advice going through a process in m and if I could tell my younger self five years ago, how I could, you know, if I were going to be purchased, what would I do differently? I mean, get way more organized. Um, now we're, it's not that we weren't organized, but having, um, every single contract and i mean everything not just a customer contract every contract with a vendor every contract with a customer every employee agreement having all of those and making sure that every single contract is signed uh, and all that paperwork is just organized in a dropbox or a google drive in a in a better way that would have i would have if we would have done that would have saved probably you know several days of of work but it's just not something that you think about a lot. I mean, a lot of SaaS uh, founders will have, you know, or SaaS companies will have a Dropbox and, and whatnot, but some of that stuff like gets sloppy, you know? And like we encountered a little hiccup here and a little hiccup there. And some of these things are, they're, they could be a pretty big risk to the acquirer. If you don't have, you know, you work with somebody, they're no longer here but you never had their employment agreement signed. So now you're exposed to potentially having your IP be, you know, in, in conflict. Like those are the kinds of things that can blow up a deal. 
Same thing could happen with some sort of vendor. You did business, you know, you built some feature, but you used a third party. Where's the contract? Is it signed? What does it say around IP? Like those are the kinds of things that can blow up a deal. And I wish we had a little bit, we're a little bit tighter on that from an operational perspective than we were. Now we had, we had 95% of that, but that last 5% could have been risky to us had we not hunted all of those things down, you know, during the process. All right. Okay. So, um, of course, I want to ask about your personal uh, feelings toward the acquisition. And this yeah. is something that I asked JP as well, because yeah. uh, I talked to to founders that, you know, have been, have been founders for, for two, three years and they sold a business and they were talking about, you know, their personality crisis because they're no longer, uh, you know, people that are running this company. They're no longer the CEOs. Yeah. So uh, did it happen to you too? Or you were ready and it was just another step to take to let it go? Yeah, I think I personally was, was ready. I mean, 16 years is a long time for anything. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I certainly was ready to do something different or to, to move on. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and, you know, I think the timing couldn't have been better for JP and I, I think we both felt the same way. And, um, we had both were planning to oh. st step away from the business and actually have somebody else run it. Yuri, while we went off and built our own startup. So we, um, you know, we had felt like we had done everything possible to get the business profitable and, and growing. And we felt like the business needed fresh eyes on it and fresh energy on it. Um, so I was certainly ready. Um, and I'm pretty sure JP would say the same. And so we were happy that uh, we found the SAS group or the SAS group found us because, you know, we obviously put uh, a lot of um, blood, sweat and tears into the business. And we wanted to leave the business and the people and our customers in really good hands. And we were very happy. And, and it's easy for that not to happen that way and, and go into some private equity place where they cut costs and and but we felt really good about where it landed. I mean, it couldn't okay. have been better, honestly. Sounds perfect. All right. And uh, again, a question that I asked pretty much everybody, what was the biggest win and the biggest failure for, for the business or maybe for you as a founder during uh, the pipeline? The biggest win, um, the biggest win as a founder, I mean, I think you can't get a bigger win than selling the, the company, right? To somebody that, like I said, uh, you feel really good about uh, and a bit a place uh, that, you know, the team and the customers are going to also feel good about. And we, like we have, we've had customers for 12 years, 13 years who've been customers of ours. So we wanted to really make sure that everything uh, worked out. So I think that was certainly the biggest win for me. It's every entrepreneur's dream to sell their business and, and then get a new puppy. <laughs> That's the best one. <laughs>
<laughs> there is selling a business and there is getting a puppy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. That sounds good. And uh, I think I just have, um, you know, one more question until I, I leave you and Bruno. What business do you think is here to stay? And what particular one would you love uh, to have shares at? Is there like a company that you absolutely look up to and the founders that, that you would like to engage with somehow? Um, I mean, in terms of, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, I mean, there's certainly a lot of business in sort of the enterprise space. A Apple's always been for 30 years has been a company I've looked up to and admired in sort of the B2C space. Airbnb is certainly a company I really, really admire, um, what they've built and their story and the way that they operate and run that business and it's profitable and I use the service. And so I, I certainly admire what they've done and accomplished there. I think I, one of the inspiring businesses for, for us, for JP and I has always been 37 signals and the base camp team and Jason Fried and DHH. And that's where we learned about rails and I was enamored with their products and their approach to business. And they were definitely influential in a lot of things that we've done in our business and specifically bootstrapping and having it be profitable and having it be a very durable business. I mean, they were sort of an inspiration for a lot of that. And so I, I certainly admire um, what they've done and they've been around for now 19 years and they've got hay and they've got base camp and you know, they've had some challenges recently, but they're still a, a profitable SaaS business that sort of went against the grain and didn't go the route of some of these other companies that are out there that took hundreds of millions of dollars that, you know, aren't even successful. Um, so yeah, those are, those are three. Awesome. All right. I think it's a, yeah, it's, it's a good crowd uh, to look up to. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. So, yeah, Nick, I mean, it was, it was great talking to you. It was a lot of fun. Uh, yes, thank you. Bruno is a lot of fun. <laughs> well, this is, this is low energy, Bruno. He's, I'll be bouncing off the sofa shortly. Okay. Well, I'm glad he joined anyway. And yes. uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks for walking us through right. uh, this story of Pipeline. It was, it was amazing. And I hope uh, that your next venture is as inspiring as this one. Thank you. Thank you. And take care. All right. Bye. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS group a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saws.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.